A bill from Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida would make federal executive branch employees at will. You could be fired for any reason short of a prohibited personnel practice. We get one interpretation of what this bill could mean from the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association's NARF's John Hatton. John, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And this bill is got a few co-sponsors, I think, already in also in the House. And yeah. what's your read on what it would actually do here? Well, I think you explained it pretty simply in terms of making everybody at will. That means people could be fired or hired for political purposes. This is uh, Schedule F on steroids. It would abolish the Merit System Protection Board, so you would have no administrative right to appeal an adverse action. There would still be potential remedies to go to court in very limited circumstances, similar to what may be available in the private sector. But this really eviscerates the merit-based civil service entirely, uh, and it doesn't really hide the fact that it's trying to do that. So everybody is Schedule F, in other words. <laughs> yeah, basically. And, and Schedule F even envisioned perhaps agencies setting forth some rules. This doesn't even envision that. So there's even a provision that if you have a bad faith whistleblower claim, because you can still have some whistleblower protections that you lose a portion of your pension. So it really discourages even those claims. And maybe if it's bad faith, sure, you should have some penalty. But if you're looking at a, a claim that might be good faith and you're worried about being called bad faith and you're going to have a financial penalty for making it, then that's a problem, too. So, Well, I guess, you know, one of the questions is who can decide whether someone comes or goes, because if you have politicians deciding that, at the level of GS 14, 13, 12, whatever, even senior executive service, then you've got spoils system back as right. opposed to maybe just not a very good civil service system, but it's still <laughs> a civil service system. Right, exactly. And, you know, right now there's a limited amount of political appointees via Schedule C. It's about, I think, 4,000 or so that come in with each administration that are political. The logistics of hiring 2 million people very quickly based on political affiliation might be difficult. But I think over time, you'd see people getting fired and hired and entirely new roles of people coming in based on are they supporting the president that's coming into power or not? And I think that's the most extreme danger of this. And even if it doesn't reach all 2 million employees, if it reaches 100,000 or 200,000, you still have a lot of worry about how the, the service is operating, and whether it's operating based on the rule of law or not, or based on the whoever is in charge. Right. If you look at some of the language at, you know, Rick Scott's Senate site, you know, it says it's clear that the bureaucracy of the federal government is both a waste of taxpayer dollars and inefficient. I guess that's until FEMA shows up in your disaster site and suddenly <laughs> you're glad they're there. But yeah. that's kind of a broad statement. I mean, yes, there are inefficiencies in the government and there are sclerotic issues with the bureaucracy. But this seems to blame it on the people that are in the same system that didn't create that system. Right. Obviously, any large bureaucracy is going to have some inefficiencies and complexities and certainly reasonable and legitimate to take a look at how do you make the government operate better, more efficient, making sure that people are really hired and fired based on merit. But that's, you know, within the merit system is saying, like, we should have a government that if we're hiring somebody to be a nuclear scientist, that they should have the skills to be a nuclear scientist and not be hiring somebody who's maybe has, 
you know, limited skills in nuclear science uh, because they are supportive of whoever is the president in power. So that's a very extreme example when we come to science, but you can think of, you know, legal examples or just other professional jobs within the federal government that you want somebody who knows what they're doing and you want there to be some institutional knowledge carried over from one administration to the next. And you want some protections on nepotism or on political favoritism in the hiring and firing of people. So it's a demagogic bill, in my opinion. Uh, It's worse that it's done in the middle of public service recognition week and being called the Public Service Reform Act. So a lot of issues with this bill, in my opinion. Yeah, we're speaking with John Hatton, vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And what do NARF members, what does the NARF kind of body politic think would be constructive ways to reform the civil service? Well, certain things that NARF as an organization has supported have been reforms to federal hiring practices, right? So right now, it takes a really long time to hire people into the federal government. Could you reform that system so we're not using these self-assessment questionnaires so somebody gets qualified into being in the role but is not really qualified for the role because they said they were, but they're really not? So that's the, you know, for example, the Chance to Compete Act. The administration has been moving towards using subject matter experts in hiring processes as well. You know, you could look at some more modest reforms to, you know, bring retirees back into the workforce by having dual compensation waivers. So your pay is an offset by your annuity when, you know, with certain safeguards. So people aren't, you know, planning to retire one day and go right to work the next day. Yeah, double dipping. Two sets of pay. (laughs) Right. But, you know, when an agency really needs the extra help, you know, for example, the IRS may need extra help hiring a lot of people. And that's a specific skill set that's very unique to the IRS. And so how do you get the numbers of people that they need with those skills? You need to improve your hiring processes so it's more efficient. Uh, You need to be able to improve trainings. You need to be able to potentially hire back retirees. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of complexities in the way the civil service operates right now, where there's a lot of room for growth in that system and modernization of that system without, you know, throwing it out the door. Plus, there's also the idea of better training people that are designated as management, as career management, not just SES, but even managers below that, 15, 14, even some 13s have supervisory. And then if someone is a bad performer, then there are good procedures for getting rid of the people that need to go without that, you know, bureaucratic process that you often hear used to describe trying to remove the people that aren't up to par. I think it's a little bit of a myth that you cannot fire federal employees. There may be procedures you have to go through, but there's certainly, I've heard plenty of accounts of people firing federal employees. And so part of that, though, in cases where people aren't taking disciplinary action where they should, maybe it is a a matter of training and a matter of knowing what the procedures are and knowing what you can do. And having a performance management system in place that generally incentivizes managers to deal with poor performers rather than to accept them and going through. So therefore, you know, you have an incentive to deal with that rather than the disincentive of going through a more arduous process. That bill probably doesn't have a lot of chance of being enacted. It's a close Congress and it probably won't make anywhere in the House and the president would veto it in any case. And while we have you, let's talk about the debt limit, though. (laughs) That could be reached. It's kind of getting a little bit (laughs) hot under the collar around a lot of quarters with respect to that. And what would that mean, do you think, for even if it's a week of default or something, for feds and retirees? Well, if the government doesn't have the authority to issue new debt 
to then pay financial obligations when bills come due, like federal paychecks or like federal annuities. That means the federal employee or the federal annuitant won't get that money. And so, you know, the, the exact date that that will happen, you know, if it's default the first of the month and that's when checks are supposed to go out, well, that'll delay those checks until they're able to pay them. But it, it may not happen until the next month. So immediately it's, it's unclear. It's based on the timing that when the default X date is and the timing of payments. And then more broadly than how is it affecting directly federal employees and retirees, I think, are the economic impacts, the, the impacts on interest rates. You know, there's certainly plenty of economists with more uh, expertise in economics uh, that will give you numbers on the hits of GDP and the, the interest costs for the government and things like that. But I think it's certainly a situation that we should want to avoid <laughs> uh, in terms of disruptions of payments to the government so, and having that full faith and credit upheld. Sure. Pretty much everyone would be in the same suffering boat, whether you're a retiree <laughs> from the federal government or just on Social Security. Right. Social Security benefits could be affected as well. Medicare payments to providers that could affect your services. So there's a whole host of consequences that occur here. And I think right now there's negotiations, quote unquote, happening between the president and Congress, uh, really McCarthy. But it looks like they're still pretty far apart and it's getting closer to a deadline without an understanding of how they get past it. And so even if both sides say, oh, they don't want default, can you pass a clean debt limit extension through Congress or not? Like, how do you get that on the floor of the House or through the Senate? And so it's getting more worrisome. And so we sent a letter, our, our national president sent a letter to Congress asking them to kind of avoid default here because it, it's, it is an extremely important issue. And, you know, we don't have a, a specific negotiated solution that we're pressing, but you shouldn't hold it hostage for your own priorities. And tell us about something totally unrelated. People can buy something now we hope they never need, and that is long-term care insurance program from John Hancock. Yeah. So the federal long-term care insurance program started in 2002 when the first policies were issued. And since then, you know, it is a very valuable insurance product. Long-term care costs are extremely high. A lot of federal retirees specifically may not be able to qualify eventually for Medicaid if they had some other policy, which is really the catastrophic coverage because you'll continue to have income. You're not going to be able to draw down your assets. So you need to figure out some way to plan for those costs in case you have them because they could be very high. I've heard costs as high as $15,000 a month for care coverage in a facility. So even if you want to plan and you'd rather not do that, you still need to plan for the worst. So a lot of federal retirees and federal employees planned responsibly by enrolling in this program to provide them insurance in the future. They thought they were signing up for a contract that was for their life, that the premiums were quoted as supposedly staying stable. But every time OPM has renewed a contract with John Hancock to insure the program, they have forced those premium increases onto enrollees. So they were as high as 25% in 2009, as high as 126%, I believe 83% on average in 2016. And now the contract just got renewed May 1st of this year. New premiums will be effective January 24. And the amounts and different options for people will be available in September of 23. OPM has not provided information on the average or range of increases, which tells me it could be sure. very high. Right. This thing has been getting more expensive and more limited over the years, and almost no carriers deal in it anymore, correct? 
Correct. There's a lot of the carriers in the in the private sector, the non-group coverage market. So this is a specifically a group plan just for federal employees and retirees. You could go to the private sector and there's much more limited coverage for this type of insurance where it's just straight long-term care insurance because a lot of other programs have had a similar situation where premiums had to go up. They've had to go to their state insurance commissioners to get those premium increases approved. Here it's going to OPM. I think one of the differences in the federal program and some of these private market programs is that the insurer has basically taken on very little risk because they get a, the guaranteed percentage of profit from the program. And this was detailed in a report that OPM had commissioned in connection with this premium increase. And so the insurer here has not really been on the hook for any of the mistakes in their actuarial assumptions, and they're all being felt by the enrollees. And so that's the biggest difference between this program and the private sector programs, even if there have been similar premium increases. And the private sector has moved to maybe these hybrid long-term care life insurance models where you have like a long-term care insurance rider on a whole life insurance. So you could at least draw down from that first. And so there's been different products available than this current product is being done. Right. So think about it carefully if you decide to invest in it and, you know, look at your life and what you expect. Yeah. And well, I think right now enrollments in this program have been suspended. So they're not even issuing new policies. So it's just the people, there's about 270,000 people that are enrolled in this program that are just continuing to face these premium increases every seven years. And so it's a difficult situation because you're taking that choice away from the enrollees about what to do with their money and how to plan because they were quoted, let's say, $200 a month, and now it's going up to $800 a month. So, you know, as, as a potential example. John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF. As always, thanks so much. All right. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with more about that Rick Scott bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.